0: Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 35. Today we join a cast of Conandoor's literary heroes in his amusing short story A Literary Mosaic, also known as Cyprian Overbeck Wells, which first appeared in December 1886. And here's Paul to tell us more.
1: Smith is an aspiring young writer whose confidence in his own abilities is unfortunately at odds with the opinions of publishers and their editors. He is also currently suffering from a severe bout of writer's block. However, one evening, as he dozes by his fireside, following a satisfying meal, a pint of beer and a pipeful of tobacco, he mysteriously finds himself in the company of some of English literature's greatest luminaries, who promptly embark upon a collaborative literary adventure, both salutary and improbable.
0: A Literary Mosaic is an intriguing story in that little, if anything, is known about its origins, but there is some contextual evidence in the story to date its writing. Uh, It opens with the narrator, Smith, bemoaning his many attempts to get published, and in particular, the horror of seeing the little cylinders of manuscript returned by, quotes, a remorseless postman. Uh, And this was an all too familiar experience for Conan Doyle, uh, who in mid-1886, when we think this was written, he was trying very hard to get his first novel published. Um, And at this time, the firm of Girdleston and A Study in Scarlet were both doing the rounds of publishers. And he would later write that Girdleston used to come circling back with the precision of a homing pigeon. Um, But it was actually the lack of attention paid to a study in Scarlet that bothered him more. Um, I was hurt, he wrote, for I knew that it deserved a better fate. James Payne applauded, but found it both too short and too long, which was true enough. Arrowsmith received it in May 1886 and returned it unread in July. Two or three others sniffed and turned away. And in a letter to his mother, he wrote... My poor study has never even been read by anyone except Payne. Verily, literature is a difficult oyster to open. And it was uh, at this time, amid these disappointments, that he most likely wrote this little story of a frustrated author uh, with more than a a little dose of self-deprecation thrown into the mix. Smith actually says in the story that it begins about 20 minutes to 10 on the night of the 4th of June, 1886, which is as fair an estimate of uh, the approximate time of writing as any. So while Doyle was struggling with getting a first novel published, he had already had success with getting short stories into print, and A Literary Mosaic appeared first in The Boy's Own Paper in its Christmas number 1886, that magazine had previously published Conan Doyle's "An Exciting Christmas Eve" in December eighteen eighty three, which we featured in episode nine, and it was about to start serializing Uncle Jeremy's Household, which we covered in episode seventeen. Conan Doyle's introduction to the Boys own Paper had been through Major General Alfred Wilkes Drayson, who was president of the Portsmouth Literary and Scientific Society, who we've mentioned in previous episodes. Um, Drayson was a retired army officer an astronomer, an exponent of psychic phenomena, spiritualism, and theosophy. And when A Literary Mosaic was uh, collected for the first time in The Captain of the Polestar and Other Tales in 1890, um, Conan Doyle dedicated that collection to Drayson. Um, And it was in that collection that the story was first renamed Cyprian Overbeck Wells and subtitled A Literary Mosaic. Um, And it's said that Conan Doyle had planned to reissue the story again at some point, probably in the 1910s, uh, in another collection, but that volume didn't come to pass. Uh, in that aborted work, he was to remove a reference to uh, James Payne, Walter Besant, Weeder, and Stevenson as "quotes among the living," as by then they'd passed. When the story did appear again in *Tales of Twilight and the Unseen* in 1922, and in the Conan Doyle stories in 1929, both times as a literary mosaic, it didn't remove. The reference to uh, among the living
1: yes it's it's particularly uh, interesting story this one in in terms of the the autobiographical or semi autobiographical elements uh, within it mm. we don't know the exact timing of some of the other works that are being written around it but one of the things which is floating about at this time is Doyle's first first novel <laughs> um, which was firm of Girdleston would become his his Earliest published novel, um, but he was also writing a novel uh, called *The Narrative of John Smith*, mm. which at one point disappeared completely. Yes, was lost in the post, um, and then he set about rewriting this, um, and and that he left unfinished. And and it was it was eventually published uh, in two thousand and eleven mm. um, when it emerged from the um, the, the long disputed Conan Doyle archive um but it, it is interesting that you got that story the narrative of John Smith and the main character of this is called simply Smith
0: yes
1: so you you you, you kind of got this 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 similarity of character going on and he's using the deliberately anonymous name
0: of Smith yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: um because in in both these stories he's essentially writing about himself mm. um and and the the other the background material you've got going on here is Smith in a literary mosaic has these literary ambitions, but he has to make a living, so he becomes a clerk in in a in a firm that's um, shipping goods to and from West Africa. Mm. Um, and the firm at the centre of the firm of Girdlestone, yes, is a shipping firm which is sending goods to and from West Africa. Mm. So that that's that's an element from that which comes in, um, but there's there's also this element of 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 Conan Doyle's own. Literary method and and his his frustration yes yeah of of his failures at this time and and you've got Smith in a literary mosaic um, you know, moaning to himself about uh, the article in question had been sent to well nigh every publisher in London and had come back again with a rapidity and precision which spoke well for the efficiency of our postal arrangements. <laughs> yes. Had my manuscripts been paper boomerangs, they could not have returned with greater accuracy to their unhappy dispatcher. Oh, the vileness and utter degradation of the moment when that stale little cylinder of closely written pages, which seems so fresh and full of promise a few days ago, is handed in by a remorseless postman. <laughs> we, we know from works like Memories and Adventures that, that this, is, this is Conan Doyle's own experience. Yes. Written yeah. up, and, the, and note that um, particular mention of the stale little cylinder mm. because Conan Doyle always sent his manuscripts out in, in, a, in a cardboard cylinder rather than flat. Mm. So you've got a definite reference yeah. um, um, there. Um, I mean, in, in Memories and Adventures itself, um, Conan Doyle's talking about the the, the, the the trips that the firm of Girdleston constantly went on. when I sent it to publishers and they scorned it, I quite acquiesced in their decision and finally let it settle after its periodical flights to town, a disheveled mass of manuscript at the back of a drawer. <laughs> so, yeah, the, this, the, these experiences that Smith is undergoing are, are quite definitely autobiographical. Um, it, it's quite nice in that it's, it's, there's, there's no element of self-pity going on here. With no. Doyle. It is self-deprecation. Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's having fun at his own expense, which he does as well in, in, in Memories and Adventures and, and other reminiscences where he actually talks of these experiences.
0: Yes, he has a couple of other bits in there that are, are sort of autobiographical as well. As you mentioned, of course, the the, the West Africa experience in Firm of Girdleston um, and that and the reference here draws on Cunandoor's experience on the Mayumba, um, mm, October mm. eighteen one to... January 82 when he was a, a ship surgeon ever so briefly and there's a, a moment in a literary mosaic where um, Smith is toying with a dispatch to a captain isn't it it's meant to be a dispatch yes. to a captain which he has decided to put in the form of poetry and um uh, the actual dis- the actual directions that the captain is meant to follow is the mm. exact route that Conan Doyle followed on the mm. Mayamba. Mm. Well,
1: I, I think it's worth quoting in in, in full. Mm. It is, it is rather, From England, Captain, you must steer a course directly to Madeira, land the casks of salted beef, then away to Tenerife. Pray be careful, cool and wary, with the merchants of Canary. When you leave them, make the most of the trade winds to the coast. Down it you shall sail as far as the land of Calabar. And from there you'll onward go to Bonnie and Fernando Pell. <laughs> so, yes, these are the places which which
0: which Doyle visited um on the on the Mayumba on the Mayumba and the other thing that happened on the Mayumba on the way back from Fernando Po was that they picked up a great dignitary they picked up mm. uh Henry Highland Garnett who's the American consul to Liberia mm. and he uh uh he was picked up and uh deposited at Liberia where and he actually died about a month later but mm. Henry Highland Garnett's an incredible figure a radical abolitionist you know born into slavery escaped with his family age nine smuggled out on the Underground Railroad uh, and then became a, a abolitionist and a, and a clergyman. And he was he was at the more radical end in that he supported sort of mm. uh, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in, in 1859. When the 13th Amendment passed in 1865, he was actually the first black preacher to speak before the US House of Representatives. Uh, quite an amazing figure for Conan Doyle to rub mm. shoulders with. But mm-hmm. the interesting point is that he and Garnet spoke extensively about literary figures and people that had influenced themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people like, uh, I think they discussed um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Washington Irving, and then a, a group of historians that they were both interested in as well. And I just wondered whether there's something in that, in the nature of that conversation that he had with Garnet on the Mayamba about all these different literary characters that sort of feeds in some way unconsciously into a literary mosaic. mm The other semi-autobiographical piece in here, I think, is this idea that um, Conan Doyle is trying to find his own voice as an author. And uh, you get um, a little hint of that in here with uh, uh, Smith, who says at one point, for some time past, I had avoided opening any work of fiction because one of the greatest faults of my youth had been that I invariably and unconsciously mimicked the style of the last author whom I had happened to read. Now, obviously, that's a setup for how this story functions but also you know it's something that owen dudley edwards pointed out is something that you see in very very early conan doyle works where he is you know as we've said in previous episodes he's sort of mimicking main reed or bret hart or picking up on on many of those writers Firm of Girdelson being a classic one classic case in point because there's lots of dickens in there and, and other writers as well
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, in, in Girdleston, as well as Dickens, you, you've also got obvious reflections of of, of Wilkie Collins and, and Sharon mm. Lefano. And in fact, this is, a, again, Doyle kind of often never hides his sources because he actually calls one of the characters in Girdleston Lefano. Yes. Kind of <laughs> gives things away <laughs> Bit of a uh, just ever, ever so <laughs> slightly. Um, you, you just quoted part of... Um, Smith's own 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 approach and, mm. and methodology and I'll, I'll just give here the full quote that comes from because I think it's, it's it, is, it is very interesting in the context of of, of possibly Conan Doyle's own methodology. Mm. <clears throat> we have Smith saying in this strait, I determined to devote my leisure to running rapidly through the works of the leading English novelists, from Daniel Defoe to the present day in the hope of stimulating my latest ideas and of getting a good grasp of the general tendency of literature then for some time past I had avoided opening any work of fiction because one of the greatest faults of my youth had been that I invariably and unconsciously mimicked the style of the last author whom I had happened to read. Now, however, I made up my mind to seek safety in a multitude and by consulting all the English classics to Mm -hmm. avoid the danger of imitating anyone too closely. I had just accomplished the task of reading through the majority of the standard novels at the time when my narrative commences um and and you 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 wonder with 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 Doyle himself it, it seems from an early age he'd actually gone out of his way almost to uh, to familiarize himself with with uh, with the works of the standard authors yes uh, both in terms of fiction and going for the great historians mm-hmm. and essayists and and, and 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 so getting this this wider grasp um, and um, one of the stories he tells in, in Memories and Adventures, um, he, he talks about his general aspiration towards literature was tremendously strong. My mind was reaching out in what seemed an aimless way in all sorts of directions. I used to be allowed twopence for my lunch, but near the pie shop was a secondhand bookshop with a barrel full of old books and the legend, your choice for twopence" stuck above it. Often the price of my luncheon used to be spent on some sample out of this barrel. And I have within reach of my arm as I write these lines, copies of Gordon's Tacitus, Temple's works, Pope's Homer, Addison's Spectator, and Swift's works, which all came out of the Tuppany box. (laughs) Anyone observing my actions and tastes would have said that so strong a spring would certainly overflow. (laughs) So he's he's obviously been... um, Setting out mm. de- deliberately to um, to, to familiarise himself, you know, even on this uh, the limited budget, mm. um, in, into into the the classics, and you, you you're getting this really reflected yes. in in this this uh, on the surface comical story, yeah. um, but there's there's so much else going on. There is
0: yes, and you can almost feel that sense of um, almost a kind of pressure on Conan Doyle to create some kind of great work, either because he expected that he should be capable of doing it, or, or indeed maybe his mm. his mother or family influences suggesting mm. that he should. And there's even a little autobiographical element within uh, a literary mosaic where Smith says, you know, finding myself independent, I rented a quiet house removed from the uproar and bustle of London, and there I settled down with the intention of producing some great work which should single me out from the family of the Smiths. And while Smith might not be from a particularly distinguished background, Doyle obviously was. the The Doyle family he had his his grandfather, he had his uh, uncle Dickie Doyle, uh, and two other uncles, both of whom, you know, were distinguished in their own right. His father had felt that pressure of trying to um, uh, uh, succeed with the Doyle family name as well, and you can sort of sense in th- in this moment in the story um, a little bit of pressure applying to. Conan Doyle. The other thing, of course, is that this reference to trying to become independent and um, making a name on his own also alludes to that time in South Sea where he was offered money from the Doyle family mm-hmm. to uh, uh, the Catholic Doyle family to to set up as long he as he sort of restored his uh, um, Catholic faith. And of course, he rejected the, the money. So there's a couple of things going on in, in that little sentence as well, I think.
1: And and coming back to the question of 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 Conan Doyle's methodology, um, and and research methods and mm. and all that aspect, uh, you can see elements in in um, a literary mosaic which are reflecting a story which was published three years earlier, um, in December eighteen eighty three, um, uh, called "Selecting a Ghost" mm. or "The Ghosts of of Grange," yeah. um, in which um, a very a very foolish. Um, Jumped-up character um, who's who's sort of like Smith, but 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 far more pretentious. Yes, <laughs> um, and and even more foolish in his way. Um, a, 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 a parvenu grocer who's become rich, <laughs> yes. Ar- Argentine Dodd, yeah. who buys a, an ancient pile and decides it it must have a ghost. So he he then. Uh, he, he, he has this this strange experience where he ends up selecting ghosts and it's all, you know, he has to see a doctor afterwards. <laughs> um, and, and the doctor tells him, you tell me in your note that your mind was saturated with ghostly literature. You had long taken a morbid interest in classifying and recalling the various forms in which apparitions have been said to appear. <laughs> um, so basically, Dodd's been doing what Smith does. Um, and... and um, what we end up with in A literary mosaic is 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 they have a similar experience. Yeah. Um, this 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 mind saturation um, shows itself up in a peculiar way.
0: Yeah, and so mm. as Smith is enjoying his uh, his his after meal drink and his <laughs> pipe, he starts to descend in this slumber, and his ta- the table in his room starts to be populated with all these great literary characters from. Mm-hmm. Um, you can almost
1: see the 1970s wibbly wobbly yeah, television effects as,
0: <laughs> as it happens. They do, they do. That's right. And then, and then they start to appear out of this, out of the vapors of this, of this pipe, and uh, and uh, and suddenly we've got this whole cast of 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 great literary um, figures sat around the table. Yeah. Yes,
1: and and um amongst them are Charles Dickens, Charles Lamb, Henry Fielding, Samuel Richardson, Lawrence Stern, Captain Marriott, James Payne, Walter Besant, Robert Louis Stevenson, William Makepeace Thackeray, George Eliot, and Weeder. So you'll you'll notice amongst these names it's it's a real mix of seventeenth of, 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 of through to nineteenth century mm. writers. Um but, but um Smith also makes um an an interesting side comment which again could reflect on on conan doyle um, and his own family connections Ooh. almost slips in here uh, where, where smith while he's looking at this this gathering says um, while among those at the far side the majority were dressed in the most modern style and among them i saw to my surprise several eminent men of letters whom i had the honor of knowing yeah so he's he's Giving the idea he mixes in some of these yes.
0: circles
1: as, as as well. Now whether you know they he is overplaying his role. Mm. He's just seen these 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 individuals in a club or or a pub or something, <laughs> or whether he actually knows them. We don't you know in in a knows them in a sense of of as as friends or real acquaintances. But yes. I just think it's just an interesting thing to be dropped in.
0: Yeah, it is. It's an, an, mm. another classic sort of. Conan Doyle name dropping <laughs> exercise as well as we saw in Memories and Adventures, <laughs> um, and then as the uh, as the figures um, materialize around the table, they decide they're going to get get him get Smith started with his story, and they look around as to who to get started. And five uh, of the novelists um, take part. Really, I mean, there are others doing occasional interjections, but essentially five, and they're um, Defoe, Swift, Smollett, Scott, and Bulwer Lytton. Um, and naturally, they all turn to to Defoe to get them started, since Defoe is, you know, regarded really as the uh, as the father of the English novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Defoe is very sort of self facing again. Says, you know, "Nay, he gossips," he said. There are others more worthy. But he was interrupted by loud cries of "No, no!" from the whole table. Um, and of course, Conan Doyle takes us straight into uh, um, Defoe giving Smith the opening. Uh, which describes Cyprian Overbeck-Wells and how he got his name and where he was born. And this is straight out of the first couple of paragraphs of Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> um, you know, I was born in the year 1632 in the city of York of a good family, though not of that country, my father being a foreigner of Bremen, etc., etc., etc. So, um, you know, he he dips straight into this. But one of the things that really interested me in the Defoe sequence was that um, uh, he... Defoe very quickly, even before he starts the narration, mentions um, Lord Rochester, and this is very interesting because it's a an incidental detail that doesn't really need to be here in the story at all, but um, could be again. As you know, very relevant when you think about uh, the points you were making, Paul, about Covenanter's writing method and his influences. Rochester was a uh, notorious Restoration rake who died of syphilis, aged thirty-three, and he wrote famously lewd poetry um, and was probably the author of a, a playlet called Sodom or the Quintessence of Debauchery from sixteen seventy-two, which seemed to sum up the uh, the Restoration age and was almost designed to upset the Puritans. Um, and Defoe was hugely enamored of um, Rochester. He really enjoyed his work. In fact, uh, it's referenced some 60 times in Defoe's work, more than any other author, making him part of the sort of furniture of his mind. And in fact, even Moll Flanders quotes Rochester at some point. Um, but it was John McVoe, uh, an academic writing in 1974, um, pointed out that Rochester had kind of infected Defoe's imagination in a quite unhelpful way. And that Defoe was both drawn to the personality of Rochester, but then sort of repelled by some of the politics and philosophy therein. And that accounts, in McVoe's eyes, to the um, discrepancies that you sometimes get in in Defoe about the nature of mankind, particularly in in Robinson Crusoe. Um, So it's interesting that you get this kind of crisis of of an author being influenced by another author, reflected even before the story of Cyprian Overbeck-Wells Begins. The other thing that McVeau says, though, is that Defoe was in the habit of soaking up all sorts of ideas like a sponge and using them if they appeal to him, no matter where they came from. He contradicts and trips over himself because conflicting kinds and traditions of thought meet in him and are not perfectly harmonized. And that's almost a description of what happens here in uh, in literary mosaic. And then, of course, Defoe passes the story across to the next novelist in the line, and that is uh, Jonathan Swift, or Dean Swift, as they refer to him, because of course he was an Anglican clergyman as well. And and naturally enough, Conan Doyle here is pastiching uh, Gulliver's travels. Uh, so uh, immediately this character of Cyprian Overbeck-Wells, who has been created by uh, Defoe, um, then ends up um, being shipwrecked. And one of the things that, of course, um, Swift is known for is this kind of great deal of nautical detail that he would throw into some of these early sections and um but this doesn't go down quite so well with the literary company that we have around (laughs) the table so this is great moment at the description of this nautical maneuver i observed that smollett grinned and a gentleman who was sitting higher up the table in the uniform of the royal navy and who i guessed to be captain marriott became very uneasy and fidgeted (laughs) in his own seat so (laughs) clearly swift not quite uh uh, as well uh, on the on the nautical detail as those two who had both served in the navy of course um but um this whole business of uh, uh, of it being uh, a pastiche of Gulliver then um sort of irritates Lawrence stern
1: yes stern rather rather testily. <laughs> And, and in an undertone, a, a second edition, Gulliver served up cold, <laughs> which then irritates Swift. And uh, yeah, this this wonderful um, argument between the, these 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 two writers. There's, there's a wonderful bit in this argument where they're the, the referring to an incident in Stern's Sentimental Journey, which involves a, a dead donkey. A donkey, yes. <laughs> Swift says to um to, to stern um your reverence would fain make a sentimental journey of the narrative i doubt not and find pathos in a dead donkey the faith no man can blame thee for mourning over thy own, thine own kith and kin <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, just wonderful and then, then stern is given the offer um and and he stands out of it, remarking with a sneer that he was loath to fit a good blade on a poor handle. <laughs> <laughs> again, it's, it's 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 great stuff, and it, is. <laughs> it, it, it shows shows Doyle's mastery of humor and absurdity. Yes, um, and and again, this where Doyle is 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 often characterized as this this kind of big Edwardian walrus moustached you know exemplar of 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 philistine manhood of that period and sports yes. loving that he he really does enjoy this sort of, of of clever 18th century literature and and you would never associate him as a as a fan of of Tristram shandy no
0: no no no, you know, which is, is is
1: it's one of english literature's first you know real absurdist even you know surreal masterpieces yes yeah. Um, and and so it just shows this this kind of width and breadth yes. of, of of Doyle's approach, even at this early stage. I mean, we must remember here this 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 is before um, the publication of *Study in Scarlet*, even. And and I I, I have to say, yeah, while we're discussing Stern, Mark and I are both both lucky enough to um, live. Near Coxwold, yes, uh, where Stern <laughs> actually wrote um Tristram Shandy and and um Shandy Hall, uh, where, where he, he he wrote these books, it's, it's it's still there, it's just a wonderful place to visit. And mm.
0: uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to be able to, <laughs> yes, indeed, <laughs> and soak up the countryside, which heavily features in 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 those yes, novels. yes, mm. completely. Um uh, and talking of uh, absurdists, the next one to take over is uh, a rough weather-beaten man who was smoking a long churchwarden pipe, who is, uh, it turns out, is Tobias Smollett. Um, and Smollett, of course, great pioneer and popularizer of the Picaresque novel, especially Roderick Random, the adventures of Roderick Random, but also um, the adventures of Peregrine Pickle and Humphrey Clinker. He's a great one for names. Uh, and um, Smollett... Looks uh, sort of rather sadly on Smith and says, Oh, my heart softens for him. Why, gossips, we've been in the same straits ourselves. Gadzooks, never did mother feel more concern for her eldest born than I when Rory Random went out to make his own way in the world, which is, of course, reference to to Roderick Random. And um, uh, Smollett has the most, adds the most um, uh, absurdist element to this whole <laughs> short story, which um, concerns a, um, a trick played on Jebediah Ankerstocker. A, a, a shipmate with uh, tattooed eyelids who lives in fear of his um, Portsmouth fishwife. He thinks he's left on dock, uh, and Cyprian uh, plays a trick on him by uh, telling him that his wife is in the uh, in his quarters when, in fact, it's a sheep dressed up in a dress. Uh, and it's it, that's a classic sort of Smollett thing. It just sort of come, this ridi- ridiculous kind of over the top uh, humor that you uh, you get in in many of those novels. And in fact, that, that character of Jebediah Ankerstock calls to mind one of his uh, famous characters, Commodore Trunnion, who's from Peregrine Pickle. He's a, um, he's a sea captain who's now retired, lives on land, but insists on running his household like a ship. And in fact, the description of Trunnion is almost exactly the same as the, tri- the description of Jebediah Ankerstock in this. So you wonder if that's the story that Conan Doyle was actually had in his mind over over Roderick Random, which is referenced in the story. Um, and that probably influences the character in Micah Clark, but we'll come to that in another podcast. <laughs> and Conan Doyle had quite a lot of time for Smollett. In fact, he he singled him out in *Through the Magic Door* as one of the great novelists of the 18th century.
1: Yes, he 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 comments on the the moral aspects of of, of Smollett's very <laughs> uh, very broad. Yes. <laughs> um uh, approach to humor and 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 Doyle says of him ethically he is gross though his grossness is accompanied by a full-blooded humor which is more mirth compelling than the more polished wit of his rivals <laughs> and and by the rivals that he he's discussing when he discusses the 18th century in general um he, he says uh, putting aside single books such as stern's Tristram Shandy Goldsmith's vicar of Wakefield and Miss Burney's evelina There are only three authors who count, and they in turn wrote only three books each of first-rate importance. The three men are, of course, Fielding, Richardson, and Smollett, whom he then goes on to characterize as a fat little bookseller in the city, a (laughs) rake-hell wit of noble blood, and a rugged Scotch surgeon from the Navy, the last being um, (laughs) Smollett. Um, But it's interesting that Fielding and Richardson are both there. Yes. They're both in this room as, as described by Smith. But they don't say anything, they're just they're just kind of shadowy figures who are there. Um and it, it makes you think, why has Doyle excluded them? Um and one of those reasons, you know, certainly I feel is 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 that the eighteenth the century writers we get, including Stern here, are are they're, they're humorous writers, they're satirists, they're yes. absurdists. Um whereas Fielding and Richardson wouldn't quite fit into that. Yes,
0: absolutely. And and you know, it has been said that you know without Smollett there wouldn't have been Charles Dickens uh, mm. as well, because I mean, among the very small selection of books that Dickens' father um, owned was a selection of Smollett which he was said <laughs> to have read and reread until he <laughs> virtually recite them. And the Pickwick <laughs> Papers is itself, you know, has some similarities to Humphrey Clinker in that it's a you know a set of larger than life characters who are uh, traveling around uh, around the country, and that's got an awful lot of, of smollett in it as, as well yeah, it's
1: a classic picaresque stuff
0: yeah yeah absolutely mm. so you know the great inheritance from smollett who now is you know i think virtually well not really remembered very much at all mm. Mm. just to give you a sense of Smollett's uh, broad sense of humor um probably the he's greatly remembered for his eccentrics probably the the the, the most famous one is humphrey clinker who um uh, is actually a uh, an Osler who's called on to become the new postillion of uh, Matthew Bramble's carriage as they move around the country, the, the former postillion having caused an accident and, uh, and the carriage having uh, turned. Um, so so all the characters get get uh, are introduced to to clinker. This is what Mrs. Bramble has to say on it. Uh, We'd scarce entered the room at Marlborough, where we stayed to dine, when Mrs. Bramble exhibited a formal complaint against the poor fellow who had superseded the postillion. She said he was such a beggarly rascal that he had ne'er a shirt to his back and had the impudence to shock her sight by showing his bare posteriors for which <laughs> act of indelicacy he deserved to be set in the stocks. Mrs. Winifred Jenkins confirmed the assertion with respect to his nakedness, observing at the same time that he had a skin as fair as alabaster. <laughs> and actually, when you get to Elliot's Middlemarch, and Elliot gets referenced in this, uh, in, in this story as well. There is uh, uh, actually a moment where Mr. Brooke tells Edward Casorbon um, to uh, get Dorothea to read you light things. Smollett, uh, Roderick Random, Humphrey clinker they are a little broad, but you may read anything now she's married, you know. I remember they made me laugh uncommonly. There's a droll bit about <laughs> a postillion's breeches. <laughs> so there you go. Clearly Smollett's reputation preceded him.
1: But, but as as you say, it, it, it sadly hasn't continued. And, and it, again, no. it, it's notable that that stern remains known. Yes, indeed. And Still very popular. Um, you know, Tristram Shandy's characters are still in, in, in the in the, the you know the popular culture. Um, and 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 obviously, you think of this period, uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan. His yes. characters are still very much in the culture. But 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 Smollett has certainly disappeared.
0: And then Smollett, having uh, having managed to get uh, Cyprian Overbeck-Wells as far as a pub, says, uh, Odds Bodkins, I never could pass a comfortable hostel without stopping. And then he immediately passes the story over to Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> and Scott decides he can only really take on the story if he takes the main character back in time to 1450, which, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. And the whole Scott sequence is based around um, Jack Cabe's rebellion, which was... Uh, a great peasant uprising in the middle of the 15th century. And I think this is really a a section, I greatly enjoyed this section of, Mm -mm. um, uh, of the story because this is Conan Doyle showing his, incredibly deep knowledge and love of scott while also playing with it mercilessly mm. um, you get some lines in here which are just classic scott but just taken to 11 um, probably my favorite one in there is uh by saint anselm of the holy grove thou hadst best have never been born than rouse my spleen this night wherefore is it that you and your men are trailing over the moor like a flock of geese when michaelmas is near <laughs> it's absolutely ludicrous. Um <laughs> but it's it's wonderful stuff. It's really good stuff. And he clearly adores Scott. Um and the, the but but it, it shows how much he's sort of completely internalized this work because while he is taking it deliberately over the top as well, you can see in here all the makings of the White Company and Sir Nigel. Oh, there's a germ of a really good story going on. <laughs> yeah, there is
1: actually. The, the Jack Cave.
0: yes, there is. <laughs> yeah, there is. There actually absolutely is. And you got because uh, Cyprian Overbeck wells now. The other thing that Sir Walter Scott does is gives Cyprian a knighthood, <laughs> uh, so he's now Sir Sir Overbeck, <laughs> and uh, and is is given the choice of uh, either joining the the peasant uprising um, or fighting against it. And it's when he discovers that uh, Jack Cabe has. Um, has designs on getting rid of the nobles. That's it now. So <laughs> Overbeck cannot be part of it and a, a duel is about to ensue. Um, but it is wonderful stuff. And and obviously Conan Doyle, we've never really, we've not really spoken about Scott much on, on, on the podcast. He comes up time and time again, but he is such an enormous influence on Conan Doyle. Uh, I mean, through the magic door, the second chapter is devoted entirely to Scott. Mm. Uh, and he says in that, that, uh, you know, Uh, He has an olive green line of Scott's novels. Um, They were the first books I ever owned, long, long before I could appreciate or even understand them. But at last I realized what a treasure they were. In my boyhood, I read them by surreptitious candle ends in the dead of night when the sense of crime added a new zest to the story. And in terms of Conan Doyle's hero worship of, of Scott, you know, he gives him the great accolade of, writing uh, what is in his view the second best novel in the english language which was ivanhoe um he reserved the best for charles reed's <laughs> the cloister and the hearth which virtually nobody reads these days um he, ivanhoe i think still has a a bit of a, a bit of a readership but um he isn't so blind to scott as to know that there there aren't problems with with <laughs> some of his some of his writing as well um so he says in through the magic door there is i admit an intolerable amount of redundant verbiage in Scott's novels, those endless and unnecessary introductions Make the shell very thick before you come to the oyster. Digression and want of method and order are traditional national sins. Our sense of form is lamentably lacking, and Sir Walter sinned with the rest. And that's a bit like the whole way in which a literary mosaic works. It's all digression, isn't it? It's all sort of moving around the sides of the the, the central story. And there's an interesting. There was another um, academic article I picked up this time from 2014. Timothy C. Baker. Uh, wrote an article called "A Scott Haunted World," and he talks about how Scott is a profound influence on on the Scottish Gothic more uh, more broadly, and how he himself is almost a haunting figure over um, Scottish writers then and now. Actually, um, but again, there is this recognition that there are problems with um, with with Scott's writing. In fact, uh, Baker reminds us of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's criticism of of Scott that uh, uh, he was a a delightful man, sane, courageous, and admir- admirable, uh, but that his novels were quotes full of sawdust.
1: I mean, the, the whole thing with 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 Scott what we we need somebody to do actually is, is write a, a book on Scott's influence on on nineteenth century literature generally. Mm, that's um, right, because he's he's so so huge. I mean, on on the the, the writers we've mentioned there, Sharon who Scott was a, a massive influence on him. He he, he overshadows. The the nineteenth century fiction in in, mm. in many, or certainly nineteenth century English fiction, in in many, not just Scottish. Yes, um, it really we're talking English fiction generally, um, and and Doyle it was obviously very much enthralled to this, and and this is part of I, I feel anyway a part of his annoyance at Sherlock Holmes. Is, yes, is that Doyle kind of wanted to be seen as 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 a successor to 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 Scott. Um, be seen as as the new Scot in in many ways. Mm. Um, but but um, one of the others who was 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 also in that field was was the next speaker in the uh, <laughs> literary mosaic who takes over the story, uh, Sir Edward Bulwer Lytton, um, <laughs> who you know he, he himself he, he wrote wrote in in many many fields, but he he is known. Uh, amongst others, four medieval epics like um, *The Last of the Barons* and *Rienzi*, uh, and so he carries on the story, um, and in very much in in that vein, and is then chided. Yes. By a lot of the other writers, says, this is this is, you're just repeating the last chap. Why yes. don't you do it in your own style? And this is where we get to uh, to 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 it in the writer of, of *Rosicrucian*. <laughs> uh occ- occult fiction yes doyle you know really enjoyed um lyttons supernatural and Rosicrucian fiction i'm mm. um, thinking of, of of novels like zanoni and the strange story mm. um and and perhaps the the story that Bulwer Lytton is most remembered for, to this day, *The Haunted* and *The Haunters*, yes. or *The House yes. and the Brain* uh, from 1851, mm. uh, which, which, in *Through the Magic Door*, Doyle describes as the very best ghost story that I know. Mm. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty high praise. But uh, he can also see the the, the, the faults in in <laughs> Lytton's style because Lytton was a a practicing occultist, a practicing Rosicrucian. Yes. Um, that he, he also fell into the, the fault that so many of these these writers and, and believers do, and uh, write in this, this obscurantist style. Yes. It's, it's just full of meaningless verbiage. Yes. Um, and, and in Selecting a Ghost, uh, Doyle had already spoofed this style where the, the, the bulwell litten ghost comes up. <laughs> and, I am the invisible non-entity. I have affinities and I'm subtle. I am electric, magnetic, and spiritualistic. I am the great ethereal sigh heaver. And, and you've, you've got this this same sort of thing comes up in a literary mosaic, where where Lytton, after being chided by the other writers for being too like Scott, then goes completely over the top with, with, with the, um, the, the the occult stuff. And this figure just appears to to Sir Overbeck in in his prison. Uh, And then it describes itself as, I am the eternal non-ego. I am the concentrated negative, the everlasting essence of nothing. You see in me that which existed before the beginning of matter, many years before the commencement of time. I am the algebraic X, which represents the (laughs) infinite divisibility of a finite particle. absolute nonsense and and he goes on like this for several paragraphs and, and at the end he notices that smollett is giggling yes so he's may i ask mr smollett what you find to laugh at get zook's master cried smollett who had been sniggering for some time back it seems to me that there is little danger of anyone venturing to dispute that style with you <laughs> it's all your own murmured sir walter and very pretty too," quoth Lawrence Stern with a malignant grin. "Pray, sir, what language do you call it?" <laughs> "Yes, indeed." <laughs> and then Bulwer-Lytton, uh, as was his way in 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 life, um, he's as one critic says, he bruised like a peach. <laughs> he, he then gathers all his papers together and storms off in a in a dudgeon. Um, but, but he he was I mean he he was you know, parodied in his lifetime by, by, by so many people who, who enjoyed the fact that they knew it, it hit. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and one of his main, uh, tormentors was, was, was Thackeray who interestingly yeah. is in the room again in this story, but, but it's, 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 it's the 18th century characters yes. who were who having a dig at Lytton rather than Thackeray in this. Um, but, but Thackeray, uh, just poke fun in in a similar way to to Doyle here, but th- there's a fantastic um, spoof that, that that Thackeray wrote um, of, of of more bulwer dandy phase when he hung about <laughs> with Israel and wrote society novels. Oh yes, and he <laughs> has a he, ha- he has a character just saying, "What is the unintelligible but the ideal? What is the ideal but the beautiful?" What is the beautiful but the eternal? And the sport of the men who would commune with these is like him who shrinks awestruck before that as mystery. <laughs> so so poor, old, poor old Bull is just getting this all, all the time. And when he added, <laughs> added Lytton to his name, when, when Edward Bull became Edward Bull Lytton, again, Thackeray is quite merciless, uh, in which the, the, the Lytton character in another one of his spoofs is made to sign himself E-L-B-L-B-B-L. B B B L L L. And so, you know, poor, poor, poor old Bullet, and he's just just subject to this throughout his, his life, and um, yeah, he, he's still to this day, you know, he, he is he's mocked as, as one of the worst writers, but he, he isn't as, anywhere near as bad as people. Oh no! But and of course, he he did open one novel with that classic line. It was a dark and stormy, stormy night. Light, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean one of the, the surprising things with him because he was a politician as well as a writer and mm. then i think you 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 found mark um a a review of oh, um, yes. captain of the Polestar. star
0: yeah that's from uh the saint james gazette their review of the captain of the Polestar star when it came out in 1890 and they said uh, uh the best vol the best stories in the volume which is bright and clever throughout, a J. Habakkuk-Jeffson statement and a literary mosaic, though in the latter Dr. Doyle seems to mix up the Earl of Lytton and his father.
1: Yeah, it, it comes from the moment in A Literary Mosaic when um, Bulwer-Lytton's rummaging amongst his papers and goes, ah, that's a report of mine when I was in India. Um, Bulwer-Lytton was never in India. His son, the first Earl of Lytton, was what? the Viceroy of India between 1876 and 1876 to 1880 um but he lost his post thanks to the disaster of the second afghan war in which a certain dr watson was was wounded <laughs> and invalided home um but bulwer Lytton himself was secretary of state for the colonies between 1858 mm. 59 and what surprised everybody was that he made rather a good job of it. yes
0: he did <laughs> yes, that's right and then when when dear old bulwer has has stomped off in in disgrace um the story pretty much ends um and it has that kind of vague feeling of um a kind of 1960s monty python sketch where you have (laughs) a series of clever points made to show (laughs) that you're you're knowledgeable and studious in particular area and then there's a complete lack of a punchline and it's the weakest bit of the story is that it just sort of peters out remarkably quickly um but there are other literary figures within there, but probably more interesting in a way is who is left out.
1: Yeah, it's it's. You go through the writers he admired, and and at first you think, well, where where are, where are people like um, Carlyle, Gibbon, and Macaulay, and then you real, realise he does say this is writers of fiction. Yes, yeah. Um, but but some of his 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 favourites are, are missing. I mean, Bret Hart isn't there. Edgar Allan Poe's not there. Yeah, perhaps Poe. because they're perhaps because they're Americans. Yeah. Um, but he he doesn't make that clear. Uh, but but perhaps you know the. the the greatest absences are two of his favourite writers um, George Meredith mm. who he had a great admiration for and the aforementioned Charles Reed yes, um, author of The Cloister in the Hearth who again was another one of these writers who uh, wrote in different, different styles, different genres. Cloister in the Hearth is a great sprawling sort of medieval mm. epic um, but he also wrote things like It's Never Too Late to Mend Um, which which is 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 a kind of morality story about you know criminals reforming themselves and so so he was interested in 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 the the social novel the contemporary social novel yes as well and hugely popular i mean these things sold by the ton Mm.
0: um
1: so it is very strange that 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 he's missing but but then again it's, it's also notable that that the writers who are present in this story who who Doyle might describe as the moderns
0: mm. don't
1: actually get a voice there's There's one point just before I think it's just before Scott takes over where somebody called James, yes one of the moderns is, is asked to take over. It's just about to start and then Scott butts in. Yeah. Um, and this is probably James Payne. Yes, yeah. Um, another one of, of Doyle's favorite writers and a man who would actually be very influential mm. in really launching Doyle on his his successful career.
0: Mm. And in terms of the the, the speaking authors, there are, there are no women in there, no Brontes, no Austins, although we do have two women authors mentioned.
1: Yeah, George Eliot and uh Weeder are there. And it's a shame in a way he doesn't introduce Weeder because there is a, a writer who, like Bulwer-Lytton, is is rife for the spoofing.
0: Yeah, indeed. That was yes. <laughs> a good point you make about um uh the Americans not being reflected there, because you would expect Poe otherwise. Mm. Um the um the other person that we might have expected to to see in there, possibly, um it would if we were including the americans it might be nathaniel hawthorne um but he might be there in spirit in the background of this story because there was a review um in the san francisco chronicle 1890 again reviewing captain of the polestar and other tales when that came out uh, which mentioned that um a literary mosaic was a fantasy quote, in the in the style that hawthorne was so fond of and if you think about hawthorne's novels things that, that he is he does often use multiple characters and consecutive narrators to to, to piece together a story mm-hmm. from different perspectives. I mean, Scarlet Letter has multiple perspectives. House of Seven Gables has um, several narrators, including a third-person narrator. You have the Blythedale Romance, which has got consecutive mm-hmm. narrators as well. Um, but, you know, whether or not that's... You know, so, so you can sort of see how that kind of format might well have um, appealed... Uh, to, to Conan Doyle, that might have been an influence. Although, of course, he he, he famously said again in Through the Magic Door that um, Hawthorne was not a, a, a particular favorite of his. He said, it never appealed to me in the high, in the highest degree to me. The fault, I am sure, is my own, but I always seem to crave stronger fare than he gave me. Um, oh. It was too subtle, too elusive mm-hmm. for effect, and I think that's the clue, isn't it? It is too subtle and mm-hmm. elusive for effect mm-hmm. for, for Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe Hawthorne is there a bit in in spirit. Uh, And talking of spirits, this uh, whole format of this story reminded me a bit of something that Conondor says in uh, the preface to Through the Magic Door when he talks about um, the library almost being the embodiment Mm -hmm. of past authors. He says, uh, you know, each cover of a true book enfolds the concentrated essence of a man. The personalities of the writers have faded into the thinnest shadows as their bodies are into impalpable dust, yet here are their very spirits at your command. And that notion of the spirits here at your command is kind of what's happening that Smith is summoning them up in his hour of need.
1: And in, in the same source, the, the early part of Through the Magic Door, uh, I, I, Doyle also says when you're sitting in your library, you're looking at your shelves, and the dead are such good company that one may come to think too little of the living.
0: Hmm. And of course, in his later spiritualist years, I mean, Conan Doyle did actually claim, or it was claimed on his behalf, I'm not sure if it was actually his claim directly, that uh, he was communing with the spirits of uh, past authors. Uh, He was said to have been discussing with Dickens the conclusion of Edwin Drood, uh, and I think also Thackeray and maybe Tolstoy, um, which have been quite amazing. I'm not sure what a Conan Doyle-Tolstoy mashup would have been (laughs) like. (laughs) <laughs> and and thinking of the
1: these these many different authors, there was a particular sort of literary parlour game which which was um popular at this, this time, where you'd get these multi-authored stories or books. Um mm. Conan Doyle himself was involved in one called The Fate of Fenella mm. uh, which he contributed a chapter to. Bram Stoker yes. um, was also involved in that one. I think F. Anstey. Yeah, uh, The author it. of Vice Versa also wrote with that one. Um, I mean, another example appeared in The Idler in 1894 called uh, The Mystery of Black Rock Creek,
0: mm. uh,
1: which was, I think, six different authors, including Jerome K. Jerome, E. F. Benson, and Eden Philpots. Mm. Uh, Doyle didn't contribute to that one. Uh, I don't know whether he's asked and, and refused, or <laughs> uh, at the same time, you've got the, the Stark Monroe Letters Mm. Was being serialized in the Idler, so perhaps you know the, he just wanted his name associated with that. But um, but yeah, but yeah the, these these things were, were were popular. They they had a vogue.
0: Yes, yeah, indeed. Mm. So we're getting close to time here, but uh, there was one thing I just wanted to to really finish on as a topic, which was, you know, this story appeared in the Boys Own Paper in eighteen eighty six, and it strikes me uh, as an odd topic. Uh, it's an, a, certainly an odd story for that <laughs> <laughs> for that 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 magazine, and I just wonder what the readership would have made of it. I think they'd have been baffled. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I, first time I ever read it, I was baffled. Mm, <laughs> so, um, what what uh, what the Boys Own paper readership thought of it, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it it's it's quite fascinating actually. in the, the where you've you've found a number of reviews mm. of, of the time of, of of the Captain of the Polestar. Star. Yeah. Um. Where you you've got reviewers speaking from a, a a higher literary perspective than the average reader of the Boys Own paper. Yeah. Enjoying this story and, yes, and picking yes, it out yeah. as one of the best in in Captain of the Pole Star. Um. And the the fact that that um Conan Doyle himself um allowed it to be republished in the in the 1920s and was quite happy for it to be republished in the 1920s shows that it's a story he didn't try and suppress or was embarrassed yeah. by
0: yeah yeah i mean if you were if you were writing for those kind of boys or audience without sort of stereotyping young boys of that area i would have mm. thought marriott would have actually contributed to a section to this mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, perhaps one of one of um one of uh, conan doyle's early
1: youthful favorites of, of his own would have wanted in captain main reed
0: oh yes absolutely i would have thought main reason mm. would have been in there too yeah so so we discussed what uh the boys own um the boys own readership made of it but what did you make of it paul
1: one well, i really enjoyed it mm. and as i say the first time i read it years ago i i wondered what what on earth is this <laughs> um but as you learn more about doyle yes it's a fascinating story um, i mean that, that this this is him playing about with his own ideas and his own approach to literature um as we we've said trying to find a style and and pastiching other writers testing his style testing his own skills mm. um and and obviously having a lot of fun with this as well and as I say it does point out doyle's unexpected Excellence as as a humorist. Yes. Um. Sometimes he can be very heavy-handed in the way that Edgar Allan Poe was, very clumsy. But I think in this, he really some of the the, the shots really hit home. Yes. And and I uh, laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Um. I also think it's it's a story which benefits from being reread. Yeah. You get more and more from it. You it, it falls into place. It, it, one reading isn't enough because it's just kind of what on earth is going on. And then, as you reread it, you begin to get it, and you begin to get the point of it, and you, be, you begin to get this this kind of it, it, it's it's this the, the the deliberate side of the divergence. Yes. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: And 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 the, the the fact that the story itself, the story the the the, the ostensible story about Cyprian Overbeck Wells and his adventures, is an irrelevance. Yes. It's a nonsense, and, and that's not actually the point of what's going on here. So I, I think it's it's very rewarding.
0: Yeah, I think it's more it's I think it's a more rewarding as a Doylean artifact than it is mm. as a short story. Actually, in that mm. respect, because mm. as you say, it it if you understand Doyle's method, where he was at the time, what he was struggling with, it makes an awful lot of sense. I think as structurally as a as a story um the the ending sort of lets it down quite quite strongly because there's just it just fades out without a mm-hmm. without a punch the humor within it is what really resonated with me this time round in a mm-hmm. way that actually i think the first reading like yourself the first reading i had many many years ago I think I read it and sort of passed over it and didn't really think of it again. And, and sure enough, if you look at the sort of literature and the criticism, very few people have picked up on a literary mosaic. But I think what we're saying here is that this is a really important story. It tells us quite a lot about Conan Doyle and where he was. And uh, and it's an important part of his evolution. Mm.
1: And, and it, it is, I think, again, from what we've discussed, it, it seems to have been written in the summer of 1886. Mm-hmm. And then published Christmas eighteen eighty six, and uh, which which as 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 you've said, *Studying Scarlet* is doing the rounds, and itself might have been published at that time. Yes. So we we we've got it. it it's timing is, is is is
0: fascinating. It is. It is. Mm. So that brings us to the end of this episode. If you want to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And please leave us a rating or review on your podcaster of choice uh, or consider sponsoring us on Patreon or on PayPal. You can find out more at the website. So what have we got on the podcast next time, Paul? Uh, Next time we'll be doing another one of our interview shows
1: um, and we'll be speaking to Linda Bailey and Isabel Follath, who are respectively the author and illustrator of a wonderful new short biography, ostensibly for children, but we can all enjoy it, called Arthur, who wrote
0: Sherlock. Brilliant. We're really looking forward to speaking to Linda and Isabel. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.
1: Yes, this comes from a, a comment when when Bulwer-Lytton, in in a literary mistake, is rummaging amongst his papers. Uh, well, I'm sorry, say,
0: you called it a literary mistake. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's the outtake. There we go. <laughs>